about them. He was a British philosopher. Your parents had a sense of humor when they named you, so why can't I? That should be money enough for now. The phone's international. If you need to reach me for anything, just press 2-3. The folder contained your people's whereabouts. Everyone that was on the island had left. everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 507, entitled The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. This is the 93rd episode of the series, and there are 28 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for the episode, which begins an unknown amount of time after the crash of a Jira Flight 316 which took off in the previous episode and has crashed on the small island where the Dharma Initiative Hydra Station is located. One of the crash survivors, Caesar, searches through Ben Lannis's old office in the Hydra Station, finding several documents and a sawed-off shotgun. He's interrupted by Alana, who informs him that a man no one remembers seeing on the plane has been found, John Locke. Locke explains to Alana that the last thing he remembers is dying. The narrative shifts to an extended flashback of Locke's time off the island since he left in This Place's Death. In late 2007, Locke awakens in a desert in Tunisia where he's taken to a local hospital and visited by Charles Widmore. Widmore tells Locke that he led the others until Ben took over and tricked him into leaving the island. Widmore pledges to help Locke reunite the Oceanic Six in order to take them back to the island. Widmore gives Locke a fake identity, Jeremy Bentham, and assigns Matthew Abaddon to assist him. Saeed, Hurley, and Kate all refuse to go back to the island after being visited by Locke. Locke also visits Walt, but decides not to ask him to return to the island because he has been through enough already. Meanwhile, Kate's conversation with Locke leads him to look for his old girlfriend, Helen Norwood, who he discovers has died. While visiting her grave, Abaddon is shot and killed. Locke gets into a car accident after he flees the scene in a panic. He awakens in Jack's hospital, where the two once again argue about the island. Before Jack leaves, Locke tells him that his father, Christian, is alive on the island. This greatly upsets Jack, and he leaves. Locke then goes to a hotel, where he attempts to hang himself. Ben, however, shows up and talks Locke down. He admits to shooting Abaddon, claiming it was to protect Locke. After learning of Locke's plan to seek advice from Eloise Hawking on how to return to the island, Ben kills Locke, making it look like a suicide. He then takes Jin's wedding ring, which Jin had entrusted to Locke. The narrative returns on the island, where Locke discovers an unconscious Ben among the injured passengers of Flight 316. And with that... Let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Certainly an episode that answers so many questions that poses more, but I would argue even answers them in the title. This is, of course, something I've mentioned before, that uh, in the life and death of Jeremy Bentham, we see the, the genesis of the moniker Jeremy Bentham. Then we also see the very real and very permanent death of Jeremy Bentham, a.k.a. John Locke. And uh, as I know I say later in my analysis of the episode, let's not forget that this is truly the last episode 
uh, in which John Locke appears, uh, in, uh, you know, on this earth in, you know, as, as someone who is alive, this is it. Um, certainly in the main narrative, uh, of the story, uh, of course, anyhow, uh, the episode opens with a recap of the Locke story. I think from the first time viewers, uh, there's that realization that this is it, the Locke story answering the question of just how he died, how that all came together. Um, the episode proper opens in a disjointed, out-of-time-and-place sort of way. Oscar, who we saw just enough of last week to stick into our minds this week, he's rooting about somewhere that does look a tad like the barracks game room. Uh, I don't know if it's a redress of that set, I know according to the Wikipedia summary that you just heard, it's meant to be Ben's uh, office on the Hydra station. But um, a little, um, I don't know, I, certainly it's a Dharma vibe to it. So if it, if, if it is the same location, it's fair enough because it's all kind of the, the Dharma construction. Um, and indeed, this sort of not knowing when we are, where we are exactly, um, it's, it's tremendously effective. It's a wonderful way to start things. Somehow the show was so successful in stranding viewers from a cohesive connection to previous episodes. Um, you wouldn't normally uh, expect that out of a show, a show that you know kind of continues to confuse the audience, but uh, sure enough, that's, uh, that's, that's lost for you. Uh, it's in this scene where Caesar is identified as such, and he's found by his, uh, you know, his uh, co-worker, for lack of a better word, his compatriot, Alana, who's also named for the first time. And uh, with that, she has come with news. that They found a man who was not on the plane. They just found him standing in the water. And uh, the story then moves back to Ajira crash camp, which, of course, can't really be called that since the show does obligingly show an overhead shot of the plane hardly worse for wear uh and there's a hooded man sitting there who's revealed to be apparently Locke. and i suppose i'll just pause and say i will try and um not refer to that character as Locke. For the duration of the uh, of the podcast, which I'll mess up at times, but I just want to make it clear that I'm very cognizant, as as I know you are, that um, this is it for Locke. So so, you know, am I going to call him Smokey the entire time? Perhaps I feel like the the name Flock, you know, the the contraction of fake Locke. I feel like that's perhaps a bit played out, not quite academic for us in the looking back at lost community, but um, I think I'll just call him as he is, uh, Smokey, or if there's any uh, clarification required, Smokey Locke. So anyhow, with that uh, bit on our end dispensed with, it occurred to me in watching this particular scene that Terry O'Quinn definitely looks more sinister here. I don't know how much he knew about, was he told that this isn't Locke? Uh, I doubt it. Certainly the show is notorious for wanting to keep certain things in the dark. Um, was he told to play things darker? Perhaps. Uh, you know, it, it must be such a challenge for a show to 
be writing a character, to be having a master plan, and then hiding things from the actor who has to um, who has to to breathe the life into those words, who has to activate that character into something real. Uh, you know, certainly it worked out for the show, but uh, you know, it's um, it must be quite a chore. I guess that's long and the short of it. And at any rate. I just want to point out, too, that here, Smokey Locke is introduced with a, a wraparound shot, uh, similar to when Locke is watching Walt get uh, get the dog way back in season one. I know there have been at least a couple other times where Locke has been uh, introduced that way, and for the life of me, I can't remember it. I know uh, uh, it's not coming to me, but um, it certainly is the visual language to say, this is Locke. Which of course it isn't. That's part of the part of the scam of the episode and scam of the storyline. Um, despite the fact that it's in the title, I will say again that Jeremy Bentham, aka Locke, we see his death in this episode. Anyhow, at this point, the story moves to the title card, and uh, Smoky Locke, or presumed Locke for first-time viewers, does certainly appear to be his normal self. But there are these little bits and pieces that show the sinister side of things, including Locke, or Smokey Locke. Uh, see, can't even stick to my own rule. But anyhow, um, he is inquiring as to the passenger list, who has come back, what exactly is going on. And there is telling, or rather misleading dialogue about Locke's memories, including that of his dying. Um, certainly more on that at the very end of the episode, but even more tellingly, Smokey pauses to reflect. Um, this is normally when flashbacks happen, right? They say, oh, why do you always run, Kate? And Kate goes, hmm. And then it's Australia, where she's with the guy with one hand, you know. Here we have the show using its own narrative rules against us. We have what appears to be Locke on the on the beach, uh, reflecting about you know memories of dying, and we cut to Locke, real Locke, sure enough, at the donkey wheel. But who else is there? It's Christian. What has the through line been for the flashback? Well, I would argue that Smokey while perhaps not knowing the details of how Locke died, Smokey was prepared for Locke to die. Locke said as much as he was getting ready to leave the island. Uh, Smokey now knows that Locke's body is back. Smokey is well-versed at uh, taking the form of a dead person, i.e. Christian. Um, so he knows Locke has died. He knows Locke talked about dying before he left. He knows Locke left and died while he was gone. So the narrative through line is Smokey says, hmm, I'm thinking about when this guy John Locke died. And then we cut to a scene of Smokey seeing John Locke getting ready to leave. You follow? The trick is it's Terry O'Quinn to Terry O'Quinn, but the character-wise it's it's Smokey Locke to Smokey Christian, who is talking to Locke. Um, just a, it's it's a nice little narrative trick. It really, really is. Um, but let's 
carry on. The story continues with Locke, the real one. He, of course, is transported to Tunisia, that compound fracture still sticking out of his leg, and uh, he cries for help to the security camera. What follows is frantic, it's fun, it's terrifying, because what appear to be militants pick him up, whisk him to some sort of terrible hospital where there's yelling in a foreign language, there's zippy handheld camera moves, there's the very cringeworthy resetting of the bone without anesthesia, to the point that Locke passes out from the pain, uh, but of course not before he sees Abaddon watching from the shadows. And when he wakes up, there's still a bald man in the shadows watching Locke. The light looks so low that it looks to be Abaddon, but it is in fact not. John, wake up. You had a compound fracture. The doctors here did their best, but I had a specialist flown in to reset your leg properly. It's nice to see you again, John. Do I know you? <laughs> yes. <coughs> I understand you've been confused. Imagine how I feel. I met you when I was 17. Now, all these years later, here we are. You look exactly the same. Uh, who are you? My name is Charles Woodmore. Tell me, John, how long has it been for you since we first met? Since you walked into our camp and you spoke to Richard? Four days. <laughs> That's incredible. The camera in the desert, that was yours. Yeah. How did you know I'd be there? Because that's the exit. I was afraid Benjamin might fool you into leaving the island, as he did with me. I was their leader. The others? They're not the others to me, they're my people. We protected the island, peacefully, for more than three decades. But then, I was exiled by him, just as you were. No, Ben wasn't even there when I left. He was already gone. I, I wasn't exiled. I chose to leave. Why would you do that, John? You've come to bring them back, the ones who left. No. I understand you lying to me. I do. But there's something you should know. All your friends who left the island, they've been back three years. Three years? They've gone back to their normal lives. And none of them has spoken a word of truth about where they were. It's a scene of tidy exposition. But in fact, it's more than tidy because I think that we are at the edge of our seats to hear everything that gets said, to hear things put in context a bit, and to be put in, wait for it, actual chronological order. Yes, it's a novelty for the show, but it's just such a wonderful um, keystone or a wonderful landmark 
to just spell things out in its proper chronological way. Not that we can't figure it out as first-time viewers. Not that it's not straight in our head as repeat viewers. But being able to kind of just have this little reminder that, yeah, it was just a couple episodes ago that we saw a young Widmore. But for this Widmore, it's been all these decades later. And, you know, he's had this interest in Locke. And there's been this, there's been this, back, you know, this, this story in the background of, uh, of Widmore's life. You know, this experience of running into the, the, the tremendous John Locke. Um, just, just, you know, it's tremendously fun. It really, really is. And it's nice to just have it set up straight. What's a little bit less nice is the act ending rather unimpressively with Widmore declaring that there's a war coming and Locke looking shocked while Giacchino gives a lot of vibrato to the strings. And that's the act break. After it, Widmore is setting up Locke's new life, explaining, of course, that uh, as John Locke was an English philosopher, he'll be renamed Jeremy Bentham after another one. And uh, although, interestingly, this doesn't get mentioned anywhere in uh, the Lostpedia trivia, as I, uh, as I recall, certainly not from this week's episode, probably you know about the real Jeremy Bentham. But if you don't, here's the nutshell. And this is what what I I found um, so wonderful when they first named the character because I was familiar with Jeremy Bentham and his weird uh, his weird story uh, before the show was on before the show referenced him. So anyhow, as you probably know, Jeremy Bentham when he died, he had his um, let's see, it's not that his body was kept. I think that his head was kept and kind of mummified or waxified or some sort of thing like that put on top of a jeremy bentham body dummy um and he would preside over uh the philosophical society meetings or something like that once a year they kind of would wheel out his uh i mean obviously he wouldn't literally preside over it but in accordance with his wishes um he'd be wheeled out once a year and they'd open up the cabinet where they kept the the body or the head or whatever and you know, count him there as present, but non-voting, this kind of thing. Point being, he is somebody who most certainly died, but I don't want to say he acted like he was still alive, but there was, there was debate, obviously, kind of tongue-in-cheek debate, because everyone knew he was dead, but there was, there was this acting as though he was still alive when he was dead. Does that sound like anyone we know? That sounds like Locke, where we're going to spend the rest of the season as first-time viewers a little unclear as to why he's different than the Locke we knew. Well, that's because we are pretending he is still alive, when in fact he is not, when in fact he is very, very dead, as dead as the real Jeremy Bentham was. So that little bit out of the way there. Um, This naming scene, you know, Jeremy Bentham... I think that it's one of those moments in retrospect uh, that we're supposed to say, you know, oh, right, we should have figured out that Jeremy Bentham was John Locke. Once we looked up that Bentham was a uh, was a philosopher, John Locke was a philosopher, you know, so on and so forth. The scene proceeds with Widmore being much less, you know, 
evil than we've seen him before. And, and it's really, it's a credit to Alan Dale for really pushing Widmore to new, stable, uh, paternal places. Is that genuine? Eh, I mean, I think for Widmore, he thinks, you know, Widmore doesn't think of himself as a villain. Widmore is the hero of his own story. Um, is some of that being highlighted because of Locke's own daddy issues that Widmore either is consciously or unconsciously tapping into? Perhaps so. Certainly, it, you know, it works. Locke is saying, oh, gee whiz, dad. I mean, Mr. Widmore, sir, you want me to, you want me to go off and get these people then? Uh, anyhow, with that, Abaddon arrives uh, in an SUV. And uh, that was the first time where I kind of had this moment saying, oh, what is that connection between uh, between Abaddon shortly after Locke's accident and uh, and where we're at now? It is, of course, in this episode where that will be addressed uh, in a few scenes time. Uh, but I think that just in a nutshell, it could be summarized that and this isn't quite as Abaddon puts it either, but, you know, Widmore remembers Locke from way back on the island. So Widmore was merely keeping tabs as the years went on. It's a really nice, solid fit. Uh, with that, Locke sends uh, himself and Abaddon off to Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic to find world-helping volunteer Saeed, who, of course, sits on the same uh, position in the roof he's fixing, the exact same position as he was in Widmore's file photo. Oops. You know, they could have taken his picture from somewhere else to use it in the file. I mean, the show, you know, could have said, you know, stand here, stand there, etc. Nope, it's just a reuse of right where he is, you know. It is, of course, Locke's first attempt, and it doesn't really work that well. I don't believe this. You actually want me to go back? I know how it sounds, Saeed, but you have to trust me. This is the only way we're going to save them. I'm not going back. For two years, I was manipulated into thinking I was protecting everyone on the island. Who was manipulating you? Ben. So who is manipulating you, John? This is coming from me, nobody else. I know you, Saeed. And deep down in your heart, you know we never should have left the island. It's only because I left the island that I was finally able to marry the woman I loved. We spent nine months together. The best nine months of my life, John. That's what I know in my heart. Where is she now? She was murdered. I'm sorry. Why do you really need to go back? Is it just because you have nowhere else to go? If you change your mind, I'll be staying under the name Jeremy Bentham in L.A. at the Westerfield Hotel. And if you change your mind, you're welcome to come back here and do some real good. It really is so nice to see Saeed returning to where he instinctually always wanted to be, genuinely helping people. Of course, you know, he has this, uh, you know, the Oceanic Settlement money, one presumes, so he's able to do that. He's also, uh, I think, eager to wash his hands of the uh, the blood that 
Ben had put on there, let alone Saeed's own sins in his uh, pre-crash past. Uh, so it's just, it affirms what we know about the character, which is despite the circumstances of his life and the difficult decisions he's had to make in order to survive in that life, that he's just a guy who wants to go build houses for uh, whatever their fictional version of uh, Habitat for Humanity or, or the Peace Corps is. But anyhow, that's it for Saeed. Uh, and it's at this point that the episode reveals itself to be a lovely location-hopping story, especially with the next stop in New York in order to see Walt. I'll give you two some friends. Hey, John. Hi, Walt. What happened? I hurt my leg. You don't seem surprised to see me. I've been having dreams about you. You were on the island wearing a suit, and there were people all around you. They wanted to hurt you, John. Good thing they're just dreams. Is my dad, is he back on the island? I haven't talked to him in three years. I figured he must have gone back. Um, last I heard, your dad was on a freighter near the island. So why'd you come to see me? I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Yeah. I'm doing pretty good. Well, I gotta go. It was good seeing you, John. Yeah. Take care. Ticket you didn't invite him along. Boy's been through enough. That's over too, Mr. Locke. Maybe I misunderstood, but I thought you had to bring everyone back. I only need to convince one, and if I can do that, the rest will come. It certainly is a welcome return to have uh, to have Walt back, considering the great link between those two characters in the first season, and it's truly a touching scene. And it's a reminder also that there's this other story in the background's multitude of storylines that Walt is a special person. Uh, we, you know, he's heard about these dreams. He's getting, you know, picking up the vibes of the, oh, of the, the trouble to come. And uh, it's just a nice, it's, it's, it's a logical place for Locke's character to go to check in with, with Walt, especially if he has this, you know, golden ticket to take him wherever he wants to go in the course of his search. Uh, with that, as Locke and Abaddon leave, the scene concludes with a delicious hook, Ben watching through the New York crowds. That's the act break, and then uh, we return with Hurley painting at Santa Rosa. He amusingly thinks that Locke is Locke's ghost, a bit of foreshadowing and a reminder that Hurley is special too in his own way. Uh, however, in this scene, Hurley is special enough to freak out after finding out that Locke is being driven around by Abaddon. Uh, Hurley freaks out enough to go back inside. Then there's a brief scene where Abaddon explains his connection to Locke. He helps people get to where they have to get to. And with that, the story moves to Los Angeles where Locke is striking out with the attempt to get Kate to return. Now, I'll mention that in this scene, 
Evangeline Lilly's stony, angry acting is an odd off note to the scene. It's almost as, as though she's trying too hard. Um, and somewhat connected to that, the minute that Locke mentions the girl he loved, Helen, uh, Kate's anger immediately melts away to nothing so that Locke can monologue about said Helen. Um, certainly not Evangeline Lilly's strongest moment in this scene. Certainly she's just there to facilitate the the Locke story. And, and that's okay, but I don't know. There's just, I don't know what it is, but she doesn't seem to be firing on all uh, on all cylinders perhaps it's a result of the story which this isn't i don't think this is this is quite the halfway mark but it is perhaps slowing down a bit perhaps creaking right at that mid you know at that midpoint where the beginning half meets the end half because at this point you can almost see writerly fingerprints Kate has asked about love. Locke talked about his love for Helen. Locke demands that Abaddon find him Helen. And then there is, perhaps as things pick up a bit, there's the reveal that Helen is quite gone. What happened to her? She died of a brain aneurysm. I'm very sorry, Mr. Locke. She loved me. If I had just... We could have been together. Maybe you could have. That wouldn't change anything. She'd still be gone. Would she? Helen is where she's supposed to be. Sad as it is, her path led here. And your path. No matter what you did or what you do, your path leads back to the island. You say that like it's all inevitable. Mr. Whitmore told me Richard Alpert said that you were going to die. So you tell me, John, is that inevitable or is it a choice? What, you think I want to die? How is that? How could you possibly think that's a choice? Hey. I'm just a driver. You know, there's a, a mystical, perhaps odd note to Abaddon's overarching wisdom. It's not particularly explored. Um, as in the next scene, he's rather unceremoniously yet wonderfully killed. Um, you know, I've mentioned before that there's this uh, unfortunate trope uh, where sometimes supporting or background or, or less important Black characters are given um, terribly, uh, oh, terribly insightful powers to help the main character, often white, uh, advance himself or herself at the at the benefit of the supporting character. Is there some of that here? Eh, I mean, Abaddon could be equally mysterious and equally um, coolly forceful. Uh, you know, being being any color of the rainbow. Um, so I'm not quite pushing for it totally here, but it did cross my mind that he's there just long enough to activate Locke's, um, well, Locke's sense of purpose. I mean, Locke goes from being, you know, literally broken in the hospital to, 
yes, in two scenes time, he'll end up in the hospital again, but Locke's kind of personal sense of purpose is about to be reactivated. So not quite sure where all, where all of that lands, but um, in that scene, I am sure of this, that the visuals are great. We see Abaddon putting the, the wheelchair into the trunk. Uh, we see him through the rear glass of the car. Um, suddenly there's blood splatter and kind of viscera on the glass. He's been shot at uh, with another, you know, another bullet firing. He's on the ground. Adios, Abaddon. Just like that. Locke hightails it in the car, which of course is kind of a rather color by numbers, you know, quick get away. But the ensuing car scene, which is a double crash, you know, Locke hits one car, then another car hits Locke. It's nothing short of wonderful. It's bone crunching, it's smashing, it's real car on car action. It's fantastic. And we end the act with the hint, perhaps, that Locke is dead. It feels like the wrong time. I think we're, we're meant to go into that commercial break a bit confused. Could he really be dead? Is that it? There's just a purposeless car crash as he escaped some evil. Well, after the act break, no, he's alive. And why a shortly bearded, slightly drug loopy Jack is there. He's in denial. It's a wonderful scene including the return to old, snide, unenlightened Jack, down to him supposing out loud that Locke was merely a lonely old man who just crashed on an island. Now, is that true to a certain point? Perhaps. I mean, Locke has been imbued with such mysticism, but he is frequently wrong. As I've argued many times, he's the John the Baptist. He's a wonderfully interesting person, but he's not the guy that you're meant to follow. Um, that said, that said, we do know that Locke's death is the catalyst to bring them back to the island. So, where's the truth? Well, as with most things, I suppose it's in the middle somewhere. Um, and speaking of Locke's death, the story moves to Locke uh, in his sad lonely apartment where he writes that suicide note you know that the show considered so seriously to have this episode come before 316 last week's episode it shows the wisdom of them reconsidering it's it's so poignant to see Locke write that no longer mysterious note the one that was such a mystery last week to see it in its proper context after, you know, and it's, it's simple, short context, as opposed to if you had reversed these two episodes, I mean reversed from how they were finally released, if it was the original order, shall we say. So he writes the note, then you spend all the time next week trying to figure out, Jack's trying to figure out what's in there, and it just ends up being the simple sentence. It, you know, it, it wouldn't have worked, it wouldn't have been as effective. And with that, Locke is setting up his suicide. He's very ready to die when fate intervenes, at least for a few minutes. Don? Don? John? 
John, what are you doing? Wait, please. John, stop. How did you find me? I have a man watching Saeed. I'm watching all of them, keeping them safe. When you turned up, he called me. What, what are you doing here? John, just calm down. What do you want from me? Please, let me help. Answer the question! I'm trying to protect you. Protect me. You shot him. You killed Abaddon. Yes. Yes, I did. But it was only a matter of time before he tried to kill you. I was just trying to get to you. But you drove off and crashed. Why? Why would... He was working for Charles Widmore. He's extremely dangerous. No! Widmore came to me. He saved me. No, Johnny used you. He waited till you showed up so that you could help him get to the island. Charles Widmore is the reason I moved the island. So that he could never find it again. To keep him away so that you could lead. You can't do this. If anything happens to you, John, you have no idea how important you are. Let me help you. There is no helping me. I'm... I'm a failure. No, John, you're not. I am! I couldn't get any of them. I couldn't get a single one of them to come back with me. I can't lead anyone. Jack booked a ticket. What? A plane ticket from Los Angeles to Sydney tonight. Return trip first thing in the morning. Whatever you said to him, John, it worked. And if you got Jack, you can get the rest of them. John, you can't die. You've got too much work to do. We've got to get you back to that island so that you can do it. Please, John. Come on. can do this, John. You haven't even been to Sun yet. Let's start with her. No. I... I promised Jin that I wouldn't bring her back. Jin is alive? Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't want her to know. He, he wanted me to tell her that, it, that his body washed up on the beach. And uh, he gave me his wedding ring to prove it. All right. Promise is a promise.
Thank you. You're welcome. Come on. Let's go. I know we can do this. Once we can get them all in the same place. I don't know where we go from there, but we'll figure something out. I know where we go. There's a woman here in Los Angeles. A woman? Yeah. I don't know exactly where, but she shouldn't be that hard to find. Her name is, is uh, Eloise Hawking. Eloise Hawking. You sure? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why? Do you know her? Yes, John. I know her. A long clip, to be sure. I hope not too long. Uh, it is, let's not forget, you know, the the death of John Locke here. It's the death of such a, a major and important character. And note there that there is at first that accusatory tone in Ben's voice. He had given himself over to Locke. He was ready for Locke to lead. And now Locke has not done that. When you get to the middle of that scene, Locke's angry, self-despising persona returns as well it's a a really nice narrative touch and i also just love that there's that explanation that jack has been flying over the pacific something revealed all the way back at the end of season three why has he been doing it it's because of Locke. it's because Locke really has had an effect and the last little bit to take away from that clip is i think that horrible moment uh, when Ben figures out the Jin's ring can be used for the opposite reason to bring Sun back. So now we get to the central question why does Ben kill Locke? Perhaps it's because he'll enforce the promise to Jin, Locke will, that he'll prevent everyone from returning, specifically Sun. Perhaps it's just dedication to the, the Jacob cause, at least as Ben sees it. But my call, it's because Jacob chose Locke. And Ben, despite his wonderful leadership qualities, is always looking for dad's approval, and he's willing to kill when he doesn't get it. We saw it with his real dad. Now, insofar as Jacob, dad, has chosen somebody else, now he's getting revenge like that. And what will Ben do, you know, before too long? He'll he'll be the one to off Jacob himself, the mighty, mighty Jacob. Anyhow, I think it's fair to say that the killing of John Locke is enough to take us to an act break. And after it, Ben is setting the scene of Jeremy Bentham's suicide. Here, the show spectacularly doesn't let you see Locke's body, aside from the edge of his torso here, his ominous hanging shadow against the wall there, and so forth. At least you don't see the body for most of that scene. Ben has the room clean of uh, proof of murder. And as he leaves, that's when we 
well, well, we'll get to that actually in, in a moment. It's actually, actually after Ben has left. Here, Ben, sure enough, takes Jin's ring. And as he's leaving, he looks like a naughty boy as he looks up and sadly says that he'll miss Locke. Then the camera moves up to just show this, you know, I don't know, was it a dummy? Was it, was it Terry O'Quinn held up with a rig that was safe? I don't know, but just that full length of his body dead hanging there uh connecting as you know in a sense uh the fact that bearded jack before too long will read about it and uh and you know we'll, we'll have that that flash forward there that first flash forward um let's not forget too as i've said before because now the moment has come Ben says he'll miss Locke. So should we. We will never see Locke on the island again. We will only see him when he is very, very dead. And speaking of that island, we flash to it. The show being complicit in the delicious lie that Locke lives on the island. Yet, there is another mystery left over from last week. There was that cliffhanger, which the show has been so deliciously holding off on. And you know what? They... They bring it back up, show it from a different perspective, and say, well, it's a mystery for next week. What mystery is that? I have a mystery, too. Maybe you can help me with it. I'm happy to try. On the plane, I was sitting across the aisle from that really big guy with curly hair. When the plane starts shaking, really shaking, it was a big noise and a bright light. And this really big guy with curly hair was gone, man. I mean, literally gone. And it wasn't only him. Some of us saw it happen to other people, too. So, Mr. John Locke, do you have an idea about what happened? I think I might know how I came to be here. But that would involve me finding my friends. Do you have a, a, a passenger list? No. The pilot took it when we went off. And everyone's accounted for? All the people? Uh, other than the, the ones who disappeared? Yeah, yeah, except for the people who got hurt. The people who got hurt? I'll mention here that Smokey Locke has such a look of genuine concern hearing about Hurley and the others who, apparently, were trying to return. Of course, the show has one more good little surprise for us to wrap things up. revelation that one of those hurt people is a hurt but not dead Ben. You know him? Yeah. He's the man who killed me. Oh, what I'm not clear on, at least I wasn't initially, is how that Smokey identifies Ben as the man who killed him. Is there the memory transfer from the dead, that sort of thing? Perhaps. I mean, we've seen some evidence of that. The Smokey as Christian um, certainly is aware of things that, that, you know, beyond what he would have heard, perhaps. But then let's not forget that there is the, the mind scan Smokey who might have 
you know, I mean, all he had to do was scan Claire to get a picture of her father and go, holy crow, it's the other guy's father too, and they don't know it, and, you know, kind of put that together. It's it's safely hidden in a uh, the, the, the nebulous nature, uh, figuratively, of Smokey, along with his nebulous uh, literal and physical form. Anyhow, my proposal is that while it is literally true that Ben is the man who killed quote-unquote Locke, uh, it of course is not Locke who makes the claim, but I think that Smokey means it as a, a you know, in a figurative sense, that Ben's machinations, like moving the island when John was supposed to move the island, it required Locke to then leave the island and that thus die. Um, you know, he he... As I said in the beginning, he knew Locke thought he was going to die. He knew that Locke has died. Therefore, he's kind of putting two and two together. I will conclude the analysis of this episode before we head to Lostpedia with a minor complaint that the show does something that it has not done in a long time. It just sort of immediately stops without any sense of getting to a cliffhanger. It just gets to the cliffhanger and ends. Oh, well, it's a good cliffhanger nonetheless. I'll, I'll give them that. So with that, let's take a look at some of the bits and pieces on Lostpedia. Uh, they note that there appears to be some discrepancy between the events depicted in this episode and those referenced in There's No Place Like Home, Parts 2 and 3. In the latter episode, Jack relates to Kate that Locke told him a lot of bad things that happened, such as redshirt survivors, because the Oceanic Six left the island. While talking to Ben, Jack also claimed that Locke told him that he was off the island. Similarly, uh, Walt appeared to know Locke's alias of Jeremy Bentham. Now, this is, Lostpedia says, possibly a blooper or continuity error, or a suggestion that Locke may have visited them both a second time, just something that's not shown in the episode. My thoughts? First of all, it's a long memory to have, and I don't know that it's, that it's an important memory. However, it's a fair concern. Yeah, I'd either place it. I mean, I think there's two plausible options. Locke had multiple visits that they're just not showing for dramatic purposes, or Jack has supposed, supposed some things. What he supposes isn't necessarily the same as what happened. Jack is, of course getting deeper and deeper in his drug addiction uh, at this point uh, of the off-island story. So, yeah, there's enough wiggle room where I don't think it's a huge complaint, but it's a legitimate complaint. Anyhow, Lostpedia also mentions that apart from the reused footage of Locke turning the frozen wheel, the episode almost entirely takes place off the island. The only real-time event... Oh, pardon me. Yes, the entire episode does not take place on the island none of it takes place on the island stuff that takes place post crash takes place on hydra island while the rest is flashback so that's a fair point even though i mean i know hydra island is different from the main island to me they're you know it's all it's all part of that magical mystical island but uh but anyhow Penultimately, when Locke visits Hurley in the Santa Rosa Mental Health Institute, he's wearing a name tag with the name Jeremy Bentham, 
which would explain how Hurley knew about his alias in There's No Place Like Home, parts two and three. And last, but fittingly, well, I guess I said that wrong, not least, but fittingly last, how about that? This is Malcolm David Kelly's last actual appearance in the series. He would, uh, he later appears in archive footage in the end, and of course appears in that uh, DVD-only uh, conclusion to the series, or epilogue to the series, um, The New Man in Charge. But in terms of his time on the television program, this is it. And that seems to be a fitting place to end. Let's look ahead to next week, where the episode is 508, La Flor. And we really get into this fantastic 70s Dharma stuff, the, the protracted con that they place, uh, the, the advancement of the the uh, the Sawyer Juliet romance. It's just, it's such a wonderful portion of the season and the show that we're going to be getting to next week. And if you'd like to share feedback, say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. Send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And please use this little used option available to you to nonetheless have your voice heard in the podcast dial 732-707-1815 leave a voicemail share your thoughts and i'd be happy to share it with everyone else so that everybody i'm glad we've been able to really have a, have a lengthy episode here i know there were some long clips but i think you know regardless of how busy or not busy or doing episodes in advance or like tonight tonight i watched the episode right before podcasting it's going to be uh showing up online in about two hours time uh, it's the busy holiday you know holiday week week before the holiday whatever you want to call it um nonetheless i really like to think that uh you know if it's a good episode it gives me good things to talk about and gives us all the more opportunity to get together. So I'm glad to see that we've just clocked into 44, uh, 54 minutes there. And uh, always glad to be getting together to talk about Lost. Best wishes to all this holiday season. Of course, uh, I guess we'll be talking one more time before, uh, before New Year's. But uh, if you've already celebrated, I hope it was wonderful. If you have yet to celebrate, best wishes. If you have a wonderful time with family and friends. And I'll talk to you all again next week for 508 LaFleur. Take care, everybody. Happy holidays. And bye-bye. <laughs>